God and turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter number 2. Just a reminder for those of you that are with us and an announcement for those who generally aren't. Today's the third Sunday of the month and we take the Lord's table at the end of the service. So always want to just take a minute and remind you to prepare your hearts for that and there'll be more instruction um, after the sermon. Generally takes another 10 or 15 minutes, but at the time in which we look to Christ and feed on Him as a body and always a blessing, blessing of a time um, as we and He strengthens our faith through that. But Philippians chapter number 2, and we'll pick up where we left off last week, our portion of text this morning, um, will be verses 19 through 24. So if you're willing and able, we'll stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And as I said, we'll pick up in verse number 19. We read this by the um, pen of the Apostle Paul, the inspiration of the Spirit. Uh, we have the Word of God, the very Word of God preserved for us. This is God speaking. Let us listen. Paul writes this, But I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Um, pray with me. Father, we come to you once again just to most of all praise you. Praise you for the amazing grace, Father, that you extend in your Son to sinners like us. Father, we confess that we are not deserving of that grace, nor of that mercy. But we welcome it, every ounce. Father, and we ask for more, not to be pretentious, Father, but because we know that if you do not hold us fast, Father, we will not be held. We will not persevere and we will not endure. So, Father, for that, we treasure your spirit and we treasure your word, um, even this morning, Father, and beg you to speak to us, to strengthen our hearts, to comfort our souls, Father, to instruct us in areas um, where we're blind, Father, and ignorant, uh, but also to rebuke us and correct us in those areas in which, Father, we're just um, totally rebellious. And at the same time, Father, may the Spirit of God come alongside those faithful saints um, that are just laboring uh, tooth and nail, Father, um, in the midst of suffering, trial, and tribulation. And they're just um, persevering to the glory of God. Would you encourage their souls this morning? Father, um, you know the need of every saint. You know, Father, the heart of every man, woman, and child here. You know those without you. Without you. you know those with you, Father. You know on what ministry is needed. So we pray that you would take the word of God and do what is necessary to bring us to yourself this morning. Father, we come to you. and We rejoice, Father, but at the same time we tremble. We rejoice in the grace that you give, but we also tremble knowing how holy you truly are. Seated, Father, your Son at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning, Father, there in the heavens. And we pray that that ruling and reigning too this morning um, would happen in our hearts. Father, um, we beg you to speak to us this morning through the power of your word, that you would accomplish eternal things, that you would make us more like your Son. Father, what a joy it was this, this week to study your word and to delve into this text, 
And I pray that it's a joy this morning just as much to receive it, uh, not only for the congregation's sake, but, Father, even in my own heart. Father, take it to, to new depths that even my studies could not this week because we know that you work through the proclamation of your word. So, Father, accomplish that even in my own heart. Make me more like Christ as the word goes forth. May we receive it with the utmost joy. May we find Christ in it all because we understand that without him we can do nothing. So may we find him this morning, in this moment, the next hour. Stay our minds upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Thank you for standing. As I mentioned, we pick back up in the exposition of the book of Philippians. And this morning, I just want to give you a very succinct and quick review um, up to this point, and then we'll make the transition. If you've not been with us, we picked up in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 1 and took it as our task um, to take the book as a whole. We're in it for months now, and God, I pray, is spoken into your heart and tremendously blessed as he made you more like his son by the power of his spirit, by taking the word to the depths of your heart and transforming the way that you think and the way that you emote and the way that you work. That God is truly working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure as we trek through this. The book of Philippians is just a blessing of a book. Now, all the scriptures, of course, are a blessing, and they contribute to our sanctification in mighty ways, but each one uniquely. God has a niche for taking a particular book or a passage with His children and utilizing that in a way that they need. And it seems like at that moment, that's exactly what we need. And God has done that time and time again, um, as I've studied throughout this book, and I pray that He's done the same for you. Um, But it wasn't written ultimately or, or initially, immediately for me. It was written to a group of Christians um, at a, in a European city in a place called Philippi under Roman rule. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 16 with a band of men were redirected, um, redirected from their own course to this place um, in, called Macedonia, something that we often hear of, uh, preached and taught, and they know as the Macedonian called God sovereignly redirects the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel and the planting of this church. Paul and his band of men had an idea of where they sought to go to take the gospel, and God redirected them to this little town. He meets uh, a woman by the name of Lydia, a little demon-possessed girl, and and probably most prominently in our minds and thinking, a man that we refer to as the Roman jailer. Um, A man who is without God and at the end of his rope, ready to take his own life and God gloriously saves. The Apostle Paul that comes under persecution has to leave that almost immediately and he leaves behind men, at least one man, to disciple that church, to be the church that we see today. Almost 10 to 12 years later, Paul writes this letter back to the church at Philippi. Um, A connection and an affection that has not died out. Paul has no doubt ministered to these saints on multiple occasions Um, We know throughout the book of Philippians, but also just the nature of the letter. Um, It is as if Paul is writing to them as a father, to children, and you can just see the affection that the apostle has um, for these people here, these brothers and sisters in Christ, many sons and daughters in the faith. Paul was influential in their conversion. Possibly, as they read this in the congregation on the Lord's Day, Lydia is there. You know, ten years later, there's no reason to think that she's not. There's no, maybe she's not, but, but maybe the Roman jailer's there, that little demon-possessed girl. Maybe the Roman jailer's passed by now. 
But the text says in Acts 16 that his whole household was baptized. And I'm not Presbyterian yet, so I think that those were some of his believing children. You know, some of those people in this household that came to faith, that, that maybe there's a posterity there, that God has saved throughout um, those, throughout that, that household. That's who's being read to this morning. That's who Paul is ministering to. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 26, we see somewhat of just a missionary report, like missionaries would come you know, to churches and they would report the work that God has been doing. No instruction, but, but, but just riddled with instruction as we glean from the example and the glory of what Christ is accomplishing through the power of the gospel in those words. But Paul, like an affectionate father for his children, like a pastor to these people, um, reaches out in verse 27 and begins to give instruction. And we see, and I've argued, is, is almost the thesis statement of this entire letter in verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first instruction... And Paul draws to our mind somewhat of an imagery of scales, that Jesus Christ enters into the world, and the gospel accomplishes something, and it is the people of God who are commanded to give Christ what He accomplished. What is that? A holy life. And the rest of this letter, in some sense, is the exposition of that verse. That this is what a godly looked like, this is what Jesus Christ purchased. Verses 27 through 30, he gives us somewhat of some instruction there as he knows that those at Philippi are facing opposition in their adversaries. So he instructs them as a church corporately um, to hold fast, to stand firm in the face of their adversaries and to be a ble- and it would be a blessing to them but also to the world. Chapter 2 and verse number 1, um, the... the If there was a true dialogue face-to-face with the men and the leaders of this church, they may ask, how do we do that and accomplish that, Paul? He says, you have to be unified. There must be no chink in the chain. You must stand fast as a body. Therefore, he says that if Christ is working in you, then be unified. Be like-minded. Be of the same mind, same love. Verse 2 of chapter 2, one accord, one mind. This is going to be accomplished as a church moves forward together. Again, if you're thinking of a dialogue and this, informa- this, this, um, this conversation going on between the church and Paul, I mean, they may come back and they may say, what does that look like? Be humble. He instructs them that if that's going to be the case, then you must be humble. You must forget yourself. I mean, what does that look like? We need something before our eyes to see it. In verses 5 through 11, he gives them that in supreme form. And that supreme form is none other than Jesus Christ himself who entered into the covenant with God before the ages began to to come in in human flesh, take upon Himself the form of a servant, a bond slave, and yield Himself to the will of God and to to man in some sense, to to go to death, as was um, illustrated and recorded in Psalm 22, that we read that first portion, that He would undergo the most gruesome of human deaths. But, but, but the most gruesome part of that would be that the wrath of God would be poured out upon Him. He yields Himself as a servant to God and a servant to man. That He lays aside certain rights and privileges and majesties, not laying aside His deity, but taking upon Himself a humanity in which He could die for a people who could never die for themselves and secure salvation for a people who could never secure it for themselves. So God's grace is extended to mankind. He says, you want to know what humility looks like? It looks like that. Verse 12, He begins to hash out some of the particulars of that, and commanding them and instructing them further in their faith towards God and their influence um, to the world. And he, and he somewhat places a capstone upon that 
in verses 16 through 18, as we looked last week, as um, he illustrates that reality in his own life by the willingness of giving his own life, a sacrifice, a drink offering to be poured out upon or beside, alongside the sacrifice of their service and their faith. Paul is interested uh, not only in their profession of faith, but their holiness and their perseverance in the Lord, their likeness to Christ. And he says, I'm willing, if, if, if God requires, what a joy it would be to contribute to the sanctification of your soul and the progress of your faith and the furtherance of the gospel if God would allow my life, but not only my life, my death, um, to push that forward. Just like Christ, His life and death, becoming a benefit for the saints and the children of God, Paul embodies that. And in chapter 2 and verse number 19, we see... At this point in the letter that he begins to share some personal news, particularly a plan forward for his ministry and the ministry um, there at Philippi. And it seems somewhat disjointed and, um, and dissected here. Some argue that actually Paul, uh, it was somewhat inappropriate of Paul to put this here because generally what will happen is, is that this would happen at the end of the letter. You know, his greetings at the beginning, his farewell and plans at the end. Um, that, but Paul kind of redirects to a different position here, and then he comes back to instruction. Seems to some to be somewhat disjointed. And maybe it is, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't out of the calculated plan of the Apostle Paul. Um, it could very well be, and I want to give you this this morning, it could very well be that the reason that this is placed here um, is because that as the Apostle Paul elevates what humility looks like, it may very well come to the minds of the Philippian believers um, somewhat of a discouraged heart, asking themselves, who can do this? Thus Paul inserts his plan for Timothy and Epaphroditus to come to in some way illustrate for them and give them examples of exactly what he was just talking about. That maybe what we have recorded for us here, yes, is in some sense Paul's plan to come. But in that plan, he uses it as, as an environment and circumstances which to uphold and to promote and to exalt men of God and godly examples for them to follow. That if any man would come and say, who can do this? Who is fit for this? Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. And you see embodied in the Apostle himself the sacrificial service of Christ as it works itself out in life. And they may come back and they may say, well, of course, he's an Apostle. He would be a kind of guy that would do that. He's a super Christian. He's someone that is above and beyond men like us. And maybe that's why the Apostle here, and again, speculation, why he puts it here, but it's here nevertheless, and I'm going to offer it to you in that fashion, um, to think on. Then he offers Timothy. And then he offers Epaphroditus. Average men, regular men, saved by the grace of God, um, who Paul offers to the church at Philippi for their service and commends them as an example to follow. So for the next two weeks, that's exactly what we're going to look at. This week we're going to look at Timothy's life which I pray is just a blessing to you 
Um, as you think on Timothy's life, Timothy's ministry, and the impact and influence that it had a potential to have, because, and in part because of the relationship that it was born out of, which was the apostle himself. And then we're going to see the same thing next week in a similar way, um, but with some distinctions in Epaphroditus' um, mind. But this morning, I want to offer you, as Paul offers them, the example of Timothy. The example. We need examples. We need examples this morning. You know, technically, it's not essential. Of course, we know that the, the Lord can use whatever means necessary that, yes, to, technically speaking, theologically, you can sit at home with your Bible and God can speak to you. But the reality is, is that, that, that that is not the norm that God has secured and planned throughout the ages to bring men to, um, to, to sanctification and through progress in faith, that God often utilizes men and women, mature men and mature women, in which we are to look to and to pattern ourselves after. God has created the world and the Christian life in such a way that examples can be and are oftentimes profoundly helpful in the edification, the upbuilding, and the care of the body of Christ. And that's why Paul says in places like 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Imitate me. Just as I also imitate Christ. And in some way, that's what he said in verses 16 through 18. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he's going to say in this passage of Scripture, again, not in explicit words, but in some sense, imitate Timothy as he imitates Christ. And these verses can be reproduced over and over in different ways all throughout the New Testament. Paul is constantly offering himself as an example of faithfulness and godliness. Let me read to you 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. He says this to the Thessalonians, to the church at Thessalonica. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction and joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia, which may be Philippi, and in Achaia, who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. The apostle here, as well as in many places, all throughout his epistles, um, gives this pattern of example. You're going to see it again, and we'll look at that in just a little bit. It's, uh, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, that Paul, that, that Paul tells Timothy to follow in his example, and that he is to teach faithful men who are to teach others. And what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5 is that the power of that gospel, at least in part through the power of the Spirit, came in much assurance through the activity of the men that were there for their sakes. And they became followers of them in the Lord. And that through that effort, they became uh, examples to others, such that the gospel would then go forth all throughout Macedonia and Achaia. In every place, your faith has gone out toward God. And that's the um, idea this morning. Paul is commending to us, men of God, to look to. And to example, to pattern our lives after, not only in the scriptures, but even here. And that's what I would commend to you this morning. As we think through this passage of Scripture, I mean, we see this, not only the historical narrative, 
that line of thinking of Paul's plan forward. But in some sense, that, that, that line of thinking and that plan forward, that historical narrative, um, God is going to use, I hope, in your heart and in mine to show us what type of man ought to be. That you and I should see the example of Timothy and strive to be that as he strives to be like Paul. Um, so there's two lines of thinking here. We're going to see Paul's plan revealed. We're going to see Timothy's purpose as he goes to Philippi. And it's going to create this environment in which we can look and glean and delve deep into the character of this man, Timothy, in which we can learn from. So I want to give you those first two points quickly. I'm going to spend most of our time um, on what Paul has to say about Timothy. So number one, Paul's plan revealed. Paul plans in verse 19, verse 23 and 24, um, he, he redirects again to his personal plans for the ministry there. What is his plan? His plan is to send Timothy to Philippi. Paul plan revealed, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Verse 23, therefore I hope to send him at once. As soon as I see how it goes with me, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. That Paul, you'll remember, is chained to a Roman soldier. Um, he's, he's got a decent amount of liberty, but he's, he's restricted there at Rome. He cannot go to those at Philippi. He cannot run to his children in the faith. He has received a message, you'll remember, from a man by the name of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus has heard that Paul is in chains. And in those chains, the church at Philippi had such an affection for the apostle and that they sent in the man by the name of Epaphroditus, 250 to 300 miles, round trip, four to six months um, all together, why, to meet the spiritual need of this, um, this man by the name of the apostle Paul. And this is the reality of where Paul is writing from in the Roman prison. Now, he's about to send Epaphroditus back with a letter, with this letter. Epaphroditus has almost come to death. We'll find that out next week. Um, he's at the end of his life. God gloriously preserves him and brings him back to at least half, if not full health, to give him health and strength back for the journey. So he's going to send this letter back to um, the, the church at Philippi to encourage and to instruct them. That's what he says. He says, but I trust in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly. You may have a translation there that literally says hope. Hope. In English, we use the term hope in a way which communicates to us some, somewhat a certain level of uncertainty. I mean, this isn't the case in the original language. Paul um, trusts. Paul has confidence. Paul is convinced, as used other places in the, even in this letter, um, chapter 1, verse 24, chapter 1, verse 25, Paul is relatively convinced that he will be freed from this Roman prison, although if the Lord wills, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So, so to God be the glory. But he's relatively convinced that God will allow him to live, to be a minister to the saints here at Philippi, as well as many other churches. And two, he is convinced, or trusts, or hopes. It, it is a, a confident expectation that he is going, it is a settled confidence that he is going to um, send Timothy back to um, the church there at Philippi. Why? So we see Paul's plan revealed. And secondly, we see Timothy's purpose as it is given. One purpose, we'll see there in verse number 19, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. 
Again, it may seem selfish. I don't think this is really selfish at all. I think what Paul is saying here is that Paul is confident that Timothy will bring a positive report that he expresses it here in expectant consolation. Paul expects to be comforted, encouraged, strengthened. Why? By Timothy's report, essentially, of the Philippian church. And really in this, you see somewhat of a calculated pastoral move. I mean, Paul knows what he's doing. (laughs) He's sending a report and he's sending instruction. And what does he do? He sends it with Epaphroditus. And it's not um, dead end. It's not open-ended. You know what he says to the church? He says, "Um, in a little while, I'm sending Timothy, who's like-minded like me. Um, somewhat, to, so he gives them time for that instruction to take root. And then he follows it up by, after Timothy comes in verse 24, I myself will come shortly. Um, by sending Epaphroditus with a letter, mentioning that Timothy is coming, he gives time for the instruction to take root. And one of the means that God uses to accomplish growth in, in the people of God is expectancy and accountability. If they expect Timothy to come, so you know what it's going to do? It's going to put them to work. It makes them accountable to the information and the instruction received. Can you imagine Euodia and Syntyche? <laughs> As Paul corrects them, Paul says, you know, when the time's right, Timothy's coming. He's going to check in on you guys. And not only that, after that, if you've still not got it together, I'm coming. Which, in some sense, like a father to a son or a, a mother to a son or a daughter, um, gives instruction and then says, you know, you've got 15 minutes. <laughs> 15 minutes comes, reckoning will happen. Um, and either consequence or reward, blessing or cursing in some sense. And that's the reality of us as sinful men and sinful women. We need accountability to push on. But not only is it going to be an encouragement to Paul, and I think one reason it's going to be an encouragement to Paul and he expects it, he's confident of it, is why? Because he says previously um, that, that he knows that they'll obey because they've always obeyed. You know, Paul is expecting um, obedience. Paul is expecting growth. Paul is going to be comforted and instructed because he has a confident expectation that he who began a good work and then will complete it to the day of Christ. That Paul, um, like a father to a son who, who has a submissive son, knows that, that he's going to be encouraged when the task is completed. He knows and he's expecting to, to, to look forward, not to in, in disdain because of their um, disobedience, but because of their obedience. Number two, um, Timothy's purpose is given in the reality that he's going to care for the church. This is really the most immediate need. Verse number uh, 20, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Paul, why is Timothy going? Timothy's going because there's a need within the church. And I have no man like him, and he'll care for your state. In sending Timothy, Paul's not only thinking of himself, but he's thinking that Timothy is a man who will care for the things of the Philippians. He'll have a keen eye as to the spiritual need of the congregation. He'll have a, a, a well-furnished mind filled with the Word of God, impelled by love um, to, to push these people on for the glory of God. So Paul, like a shepherd with his mind and heart fixed upon these people, knows that he can't go in the moment to Philippi and minister to their hearts. So what does he do? He does the next best thing or an equally good thing. And what does he do? He sends Timothy. And there's a forceful emphasis in the original language as Timothy comes at the very beginning. They want, you want, he wants you to pick up on the man Timothy that he hopes to send. And later on, he emphasizes his name as well. 
So we know that, that Paul's plan, the plan revealed Paul is sending Timothy. We know um, Timothy's purpose and Paul's purpose in sending him in some sense. Why? Because to, to, to encourage the heart and soul of the apostle in chains, but also and primarily to care for the needs there at Philippi, to minister to the saints. But there's another why question that we could always, that we could certainly ask. Not only in the sense of why, as in what is the purpose of the mission, but also why, as in why Timothy? What makes him qualified? Was Paul calculated and intentional about sending Timothy? And if so, what sets him apart from the rest? Where were the other men in Rome? Why is it that, 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 that Timothy's a choice? Is it just because Timothy was present? Or was there another reason? Did he have something unique to offer the church at Philippi as a man in his service, in his example, um, in his ability that would benefit them. And that, I believe, is what we'll see here as Paul gives us, this why of, of why Timothy. So number three, I want to look at, and for the most of our time, the rest of our time, the next 30 minutes or 40 minutes, and we're going to look at um, the character and the credentials that Paul gives us related to Timothy's service. This glorious example um, that the apostle gives. And I'll give you seven characteristics and we'll start out with a long one, the first two, but then they will just flow from there like rivers of living water and we'll move fast, I promise, towards the end. Um, because really, they're all tied together. Um, so what are the character and credentials that Paul gives us related to Timothy's service that sets him apart for the unique service to the church at Philippi? Number one, it's a unity of mind. Number one's a unity of mind. Verse number 19, verse number 20 um, we read these words, Paul writes to Philippi, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state or for your welfare, your spiritual welfare, you may say. The NIV says, quote, I have no one else like him. No one else is like him. But that's not really the idea being conveyed here. It's not inherently wrong, but, but it might give the impression that Paul's comparing Timothy to all the other men. And, and, and in some sense later he'll do that, but he's not doing that in this particular verse. Although he's comparing Timothy to someone. You know, he's comparing Timothy to, he's comparing Timothy to himself. He's saying there is no one with more of a spirit like mine than Timothy. The word here, um, like-minded, is a compound word. It comes from the word soul, and it's bound with equal. You could literally translate this, that they are equal-souled, united in soul. That's why the, the New King James translators here say like-minded, equally-minded. Isaiah 55 and verse 12 in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you read these words, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it the one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man, my equal. My companion and my acquaintance, my good and familiar friends. We took sweet counsel together and walked together in the house of God, in the throne. And the idea there in Isaiah is, is that, that there is a grievous charge being brought against another man. Why? Because there was this, um, this wrong that was done, not by an enemy, but by a friend. A man of my equal, a man who was like-minded and equal souls. Our, 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 our um, hearts were knit together. Paul is saying that he's going to send Timothy because there's no one else like him that is so like Paul. No one's heart who beats in the rhythm 
of Paul's heart. There's no one else whose soul is patterned after Paul's own soul. There's no one else who shares his affections and his concerns in such a profound way as this young man by the name of Timothy. I'm going to send you Timothy. Why? Um, because when I look around at the band of men that are available at my disposal, there's none more like me. There's none who share in my affections. There's none that, that will share um, in my soul like he does. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you see somewhat of a similar idea. Paul argues this concept over and over again throughout many of his letters. But in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 14, he writes these. And speaking of Paul's paternal care of these Corinthians... He says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. He's arguing, I'm your father. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everyone everywhere in every church. Now some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know, not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And what Paul is arguing there is, is that he is going... that. that what Paul instructs them to do is to imitate him. Paul tells us how he's going to accomplish that. He says, I would like to come, and I plan to come to you shortly, but I can't come. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to send you Timothy. Why? Who is my beloved and faithful son and Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ. So Paul exhorts the Corinthians to be imitators of Paul, and he desires to accomplish the goal. How? By sending Timothy. What an amazing statement. You need my example, Corinth. Alright? When will you come, Paul? Now, how? I'm sending Timothy. You receive him and you receive me. Maybe not in total uniformity, but in unity of souls and heart. Men led by, a man led by the same principles, a man who has labored with me in the gospel such that our hearts and souls are so knit together that when you get Timothy, you get Paul. What a statement. How does this happen? It happens through discipleship. You see, Paul was an influential factor in Timothy's life from the very early of the stages. And he's consistently in Paul's life throughout his life and ministry. Again, um, we have already referenced in Acts chapter 16, Paul picks them up in a little place called Lystra. And from that time on, um, they are almost joined bone to hip, hip to hip. To hip. Um, in some sense, Paul is gleaning from the Apostle Paul and God is utilizing their time together. They're laboring one with another to melt their hearts together such that they can say that we are unified in soul and in heart. That I'm going to argue that that's exactly what Paul is actually um, illustrating whenever he um, refers to uh, Timothy as a son. That it's going to be more than Paul's responsible for his conversion. That, it's, that Paul is arguing that Timothy... Is, is, is my son because he is so like me. Turn with me to John chapter number 5. John chapter number 5 and verse number 18. Um, you're going to read an amazing account of the Pharisees who desire to kill Jesus. You know why they call, they, they, they're trying to kill Jesus? 
Because they, because Jesus says that God is my Father. Verse number uh, 17, But Jesus answered them and said, My Father is now working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill Him. Why? Because He not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. That They sought to call, kill Jesus. Why? Because He made Himself equal with God. How? By calling God His Father. Why was that so controversial? Because in the Jewish mindset and context, it was more than just simply saying, I protruded from my Father. He's the reason that I exist. It's more than just cause and effect. He's saying, I came from my Father, and He's the cause of my existence. But in the Hebrew mindset, it was the same. We're the same substance. And when you, that's why he could say, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That they are divine in nature. That when you get me as Christ, you get the Father. We're so unified and we're of the same substance that, that when you get one or the other. So men today say, I want to see God. And that's what they're arguing. We want to see the Father. Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Why? Because we are essentially, substantially the same. Paul and Timothy is saying something very similar. In his relationship, in, in, in this father-son relationship, are of the same substance. If you, to, to, to receive the son is to receive the father. You remember, um, so, so to bring it to a human level from Christ and the father, Paul is saying in some sense, Timothy's heart is so unified with mine in relationship to Christ, the gospel, and the church that if you receive him, you receive me. Why? Because we're essentially of the same substance, the same mindset, the same soul. Timothy would be, in, in some sense, a little Paul, if you will. Again, how did this happen? It, was, it wasn't automatic. It happened through discipleship. It happened through life together. It happened as a result of ministering and laboring together. And that's really the goal of true discipleship, isn't it? To reproduce the teacher and the learner. You say, I, I don't know. You know, I thought it was a basic discipleship was just teaching Bible doctrine, you know, how to pray with your wife, how to lead family worship, things like that. Like, maybe that's part of it. But at some level, one of the goals and results of discipleship is to reproduce the teacher in you. Right? It is to be so knit together that as you're leading a younger man or a younger woman, that they would become like you. And this goes against the very grain of our thinking. In the individual culture of American mindset and even uh, American Christianity, you, you know, everybody's just individualized and you should be your own man. You know, raising my children. And most people are raising their children. Why? So that their young men, the young men and their young women can just express themselves, be their own individuals and be uh, whatever it is that they were supposed to be from, you know, before the world began. I don't know. You know, their makeup. To not infringe upon their personality and their this and their that. Um, when in reality, the Scriptures are clear. And I want to commend to you this morning that true discipleship is not raising up a young man to be whatever he can be or wants to be. It is to bring up that young man to be what you are. Luke chapter 6 and verse number 40 says, Jesus, these are Jesus' words, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. He'd been with Paul for much if not most of Paul's ministry up to that point. He labored with him so much that Timothy began to be shaped by Paul's ministry, Paul's practice, Paul's heart. He became like Paul. That's one of the dangers as well for discipleship. You know, Fools disciple fools. They become like them. You know, you'll produce fools. That's the nature of parenting. 
That's why the analogy of a father-son works so well. Because fathers, by nature, produce young men like themselves. And that's why you're to be active. That's why you're to be engaged. That's why you're to be the type of man that you ought to be. That you're to be a certain type of man. Why? Because life together produces that type of man. And one of the great tragedies of our lives is to, 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 to look into our children's lives at the end of life and see their failures were our failures. And that they are the type of men that they are because we were the type of men that we were. Yet on the same side, there's such a blessing there because they can become the type of men that you are. That, that Paul's can produce Timothy through life together, through engagement, through training up. We're speaking more than just a carbon copy of Paul. We're talking about um, sanctifying effect of a godly man that through his life and ministry, God uses him to shape other men and transform them into Christ. Christ-likeness. Such that the man not only begins to talk like, but begins to think like, assess like, reason like that man. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about um, discipleship classes in which we come together and those are good. We teach basic Bible doctrines and, and practical Christian living. We're talking about life together in such a way that lives are transformed through that fellowship, that, the, that there is a sanctifying effect of godly men and women through their lives and ministry that God uses more mature men and more mature women to, to create and cultivate more mature men and women under them and transform them into Christ's likeness such that they become to be like one another. And that scares us to death. Doesn't. <laughs> you know? Because who are we? Um, just go and give you some application. If I already haven't. So a lot of times we save it to the very end, but I'm going to give it to you now. Some boys and girls, you may want to write application. This is how we apply, or we're going to apply the text. It could be applied in a hundred ways, probably. But this application, we see the basic framework, function, and fruit of biblical discipleship in this text. We see the basic framework, function, and fruit of biblical discipleship in this text. As I mentioned already, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But the pattern of discipleship at the most basic level is mature men, mature women, committing the things that were committed to them to less mature men and less mature women, and in the process, enabling and exhorting them to do the same for others. You know? Say, man, I need to be disciples. Well, follow, seek out, and frame your life around more mature brothers, and more mature fathers, more mature sisters, more mature mothers in Christ as they follow Christ, such that one day you can say that that is my son and my daughter in the faith. And that means more than, you know, I met with them once a week, but our hearts are being melted together such that when you see that, you see them. You know, my, my prayer and hope is not that my boys would, would be their own men one day, but they would be men like me. Such that, that, that if God would grant and allow the tremendous blessing that whenever I commend them to you, they would look and they would see me and you. Or me and Him. That's, and the same is true of the church. That's the idea. That we would be the type of men and women that we would disciple one another, life together, such that we would produce those um, like us. Paul was producing men like him. Thus he could say, follow me as I follow Christ. So I need discipleship. You know, there's some good curriculum out there. 
But more than that, I would say find, follow, seek out, and frame your life around more mature brothers and sisters in Christ. That will do more for your sanctification than any curriculum can ever do, unless God grants that. You know, that you need to, you know, one of the great tragedies I see today, more application, one of the great tragedies I see today, not only in secular culture, but particularly within the church, is that young couples are seeking out people just like themselves so that they can relate. You know, you know what that's really code for? I don't know what I'm doing. I don't really want to know what I'm doing. (laughs) And so I'm going to find somebody else that doesn't know what they're doing either. I don't want a judgmental spirit over me telling me everything that I'm doing is wrong or how I'm supposed to do it right. I don't want someone under me because I don't know what I'm doing and I don't want to cause them any harm. So I'll just find someone like me so we can comfort each other in our blindness and ignorance. You know? My my two and three-year-olds are chaotic and killing me and I just want to know that I'm not alone. I don't actually want to do anything about it. So I'll find somebody to laugh with it about me, or that'll laugh with me about it. You're a fool that doesn't want accountability or to face your God-given responsibility. You don't need to be comforted and soothed in your sickness. You need to grow. Not many things will help you more than to find someone who has embodied Christ-likeness in the Scriptures that is someone that is more mature than you are to learn from and, 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 and find someone less mature than you to teach. You know? Like, who is your Paul? What godlier man or woman are you spending time with, laboring alongside, making time to be with? You know, brothers, what brother here or anywhere can you say, we're equal souls? That doesn't mean that we're on the same level spiritually, because clearly Paul and Timothy weren't. But their hearts were so knit together, and it was evident by their likeness of souls that these men, ladies, who is your Paul? Or your Paulette? (laughs) You know? Like, who are you learning from to be a godly lady? But she, she wouldn't understand. Her kids are out of the home. I need someone like, no, you need her. She's the, exactly the one who will understand. Why? Because she's been there. She's tread that path. Go to her. Weave your lives together. She can relate. Who's your Timothy? Number two, who's your Timothy? You know, what younger godly man or woman are you spending time with bringing up? I know what you're thinking, like, I'm not fit for discipling anyone. I'm a mess. I'm not the guy. I'm not the gal. I've got too many things to work on myself. And that's great to recognize. But it should also convict us to be the type of men and women um, that can. Like, if you know that this is what God has called you to do and be, and you are to disciple people, then it should provoke you out of your, your foolishness and your immaturity to grow in Christ, to find a Paul to labor under. Why? One of the purposes is, is so that you could be that to someone else. Paul, I'm training you, why, to commit what you've learned to other men in such a manner that they could commit those same things and teach others. That's how Christianity has been progressed and furthered for the last 2,000 years. And if God tarries for 2,000 more, that's how it will last. It will last not through um, inherently great men and wonderful characters which we can look back to and read volumes about. It'll be about mothers and fathers and spiritual mothers and fathers. It'll be about Eunice and Lois training Timothy up in the way that he ought to go. And it'll be about faithful pastors and faithful elders and deacons and faithful men within the church who have lived a godly life, taking other godly men and godly women under them, showing them what truth looks like practically. You know? Like it's one thing to know proper propositions and realities. It's another thing to see them in life and how the application of godly parenting weighs out in the daily grind. You know? But that's what some of the families here need to see. 
You know, they need the instruction of a godly man or a godly woman, and they need to see how that factors out in daily life. We don't need to get together and pretend that we've all got things, everything ironed out, and we're perfect little parents, and we need to shove everything under the rug. We need to live life together, be real with one another, and be ready to be accountable to someone over us, so that one day um, someone under us can be accountable to us, reproducing ourselves. You know, that's the thing that scares us the most, isn't it? That we would reproduce someone like ourselves because we know we fall so short. But that's the pattern. If that's the pattern, then, then push on. Number two. So number one, you see a unity of mind. Number two, again, we're going to pick up speed, I promise. Genuine concern. What set Timothy apart from other men was genuine concern. Verse number 20 says, After I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now we begin to see the tangible evidence of Paul and Timothy's kindred spirit. In what way did they share the same soul? Number one, it was a genuine concern for brothers and sisters and their spiritual welfare at Philippi. At Philippi. That he was concerned, as much as Paul was, as we mentioned last week, with Philippi's holiness. Timothy had adopted his frame of mind, Paul's frame of mind and thinking that, that church is more than about attendance, membership, or number of baptisms, but it's about the holiness of God's people, such that he was anxious about it. That's what the word there, care, means. The word here um, carries with it, care, a couple of different connotations. The second definition given um, is to care for or to look out for a thing. To promote one's interest or to provide for. But the primary meaning of this word care in verse number 20 is to be anxious. To be troubled with cares. It's actually used in the same book in Philippians chapter 4. Probably a verse that you've all memorized or at least are familiar with. Where he says be anxious for nothing. Isn't that interesting? It's the exact same word. And that context is negative and it's sinful. Be anxious for nothing. But at the same time the apostle Paul um, says that I'm sending Timothy. Why? Because he's anxious for your state. He cares for you. There is a godly concern that Paul himself shares. 2 Corinthians 11.28, after he lists a whole host of, of um, you know, um, shipwreck, being shipwrecked, stripes beyond measure, all that. And he talks about his sufferings. You know what he culminates that with? He says, but, but besides the, uh, those things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern. That's the same word. My, my deep concern for all the churches. This godly anxiety, this concern for people's souls, particularly those who have attached themselves in union with Christ, to bring them about such that the Apostle Paul could say that it's kind of like, I know I can't relate physically to a woman travailing in birth and the pains that she would go through, but if I could understand it at all from what I've seen and relate to it, he says, I travail in birth and the pains until Christ be formed in you. That that was his concern. That Paul was a compassionate shepherd who day and night was concerned with the well-being of his flock. That he picked up that burden of the, the holiness and the sanctification of the church for the well-being of the flock. And he says, Paul, um, Timothy, I send you Timothy. Why? Because he shares in that. When you get Timothy, you get a man who's truly concerned with your state. You don't get a hypocrite. You don't get someone who's being deceitful, seeking after himself. Um, one writer says, we might translate the latter part of this verse 20 to say that he will be naturally and genuinely painstaking for your welfare. The word genuinely contains the idea as a birthright, he says, something possessed by spiritual parentage. That what Paul is actually doing in Timothy is raising a young man to be a father. Such that he'll see other young men and women and have a concern for them like a father has for his son. 
That's what, that's what, it's time, that was Timothy's concern. Uh, he goes on, the, the commentator says, he goes, it was a genuine product of the regenerate nature and found expression in true anxiety or, or, or um, concern for these people. The strength of the word can be felt by noting that it was used both to describe the excessive worry which beset Martha and the weight of the care necessarily carried by Paul. Timothy was a proper child of his spiritual father. That just as Paul was concerned for the spiritual state of the church, and that governed his decisions. That it was more than about making objectively, black and white, um, the right process. That his processes were governed by true concern for the godliness and the care um, of that church. Since Timothy's heart beat with Paul's, he shared a genuine concern for their progress in the faith. Application. You may be thinking, like, that's great. Thank God I'm not a pastor. You know, thank the Lord. He didn't call me to be that. But did you know that in 1 Corinthians 12 and 24, that exact same word is used to speak of the body caring for the body? Paul Paul uses the same word care in reference to the members of the body of Christ and their care for one another. Once again, I must highlight that one of the contextual realities of this verse in Philippians, um, as well as in 1 Corinthians, is unity. We're back to that theme. You want to have unity? Then the church must be concerned, not only for their life and uh, for their own individual life and holiness, but for one another. And that's the basis in First Corinthians twelve twenty six of suffering and rejoicing. That you'll read. This is the basis of our sympathy, our weeping with one another, and our rejoicing with one another. It grows out of a true concern for one another. You carry the weight. You carry the weight. Number three, um, third characteristic of this godly man Timothy. And the reason that he sends him is because uh, his self-forgetfulness. Verse 21. I think by implication we can conclude that. Because he's speaking of in contrast to others. For all seek their own. Not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character. You see a self-forgetfulness. And number four, you see a single-mindedness. That he's not consumed with himself. But ultimately he's consumed with Christ. Whatever he needs to lay down, set aside, sacrifice, whatever, for the cause of Christ. That this is his life and mind. He shares with Paul in that. And while this is a very encouraging verse concerning Timothy, may I just exhort us by what the implications of this mean for the rest of the church at Rome? It's actually somewhat of a very discouraging verse, right? You mean to tell me that when Paul assesses the church at Rome, all the men that have came to visit him, and the body that's there, that that, that Timothy's the only man that you've got that's like-minded? That's what he says. For I have no one like-minded. You mean I've got some guys, uh, the the, the young men at Rome, you know, aren't lining up to be discipled by Paul? I mean, the Apostle Paul is like a, you know, (laughs) a modern-day... R.C. Sproul, you know, John McCarthy, these men that the young men seem to be lining up so that they can glean from, but, but, but in large portion they're doing it because they're seeking to serve themselves. They want ministries for themselves. They want to do this or that. They don't want to labor alongside or to labor with or to become and share the heart of these men. You'd think that the Apostle Paul would have just droves of men in which he could be lining up and sending them out throughout all the world. But in this moment, Paul only has one man at his disposal. One man. And the rest are characterized by this. They seek after themselves. 
It's not to say that, that there's no men within the church. It's not to say that there's not skills. It's not to say that there's not um, willingness. Paul is saying that after I've assessed all the men that have came to me, I can't find one of them outside of the, uh, this young man, Timothy, that has a genuine concern for your... It's like-minded like I am. They're doing it all for themselves. All for themselves. I don't want you to think that I'm saying that none of them are Christians because I'm not. I want you to think I'm condemning the entire church at Rome because I'm not. Not even saying that not one of them could complete the job in an objective sense. There's no doubt many skilled and qualified men there. They'd say yes, if I asked, Paul might say. They could physically and materially make the journey. They, could have, they have the mental aptitude. They have the capability, the skills necessary. They could record and give accurate reports. And they could, they could relay the message that I have. But that's not enough, he says. I don't necessarily need capable men. I need men like Christ-like men. I need someone who can accurately assess who they are at Philippi and minister their needs and self-giving love in the way that I would. That's the, Paul, Timothy seems to be the only man. Otherwise, you send a man who's capable and skilled, but doing it for himself, he'll cause more harm than good. I'm convinced that if Timothy hadn't have been there, he would have sent no one. Um, because a warm body is not good enough for the Apostle Paul. He needs someone um, who's motivated by genuine concern. And you see that even in Philippians chapter 1. I mean, men, preachers preaching the gospel, twisting it. Um, why? For self-service. So it's not a surprise that Rome's filled with self-absorbed men as well. But not Timothy, he says. What a refreshing statement. Not Timothy. Timothy was characterized not by pursuit of his own selfish interests, but by the things which are of Christ Jesus, he says. Paul and Timothy were characterized by the sacrifice of self for the service of serving Christ by serving others. Application. Quickly. One of the most discouraging things must be to have a need pop up or an opportunity of service in the church and have a church field and think, man, what a blessing it would be to be able to do this. What a testimony it would be for Christ. But don't have anybody to do it. Don't have anybody to trust. How discouraging that may have been for the Apostle Paul. I mean, I've got people, but I never ask them to do anything. They might say yes, but they're so self-focused. Maybe the application is, may that never be said of this church. May your leaders, when they think of you, think, or think of a need, immediately you pop up in their mind as one who could carry that task. We should carry ourselves in such a manner that when a need arises, we are the first one that our leaders think of. First one that our congregations think of. What a sad case when something arises and the first thought of the pastor is, I got no man that can do this. No man that can fulfill the task. Men, this week we're going to vote on the formation of a group of men to come alongside the elders to work through processes, procedures, belief statements, financial things, future decisions. We're going to ask the congregation for their recommendations and considerations. Do you think you'll be on the list? Are you the type of man? What a blessing it'll be, <laughs> you know, that at the end of this, that when we have asked for recommendations, we have to weed out because not only do we have five men, but we have 10 men and 15 men in whom the congregation has trust in that, that we, don't under, we, don't, we don't, may not necessarily come to the same conclusions, but at the end of it, we know that these men were governed by the same soul and spirit for the glory of God and the good of this church. And for the bride of Christ, that's what we want. We don't want to get to it and say, this needs to be done, but I've got no man to do it. You know? 
Or even a sadder state. I've got men, but they're so self-focused and so self-imposed and so consumed with their own character that it's going to divide the church. Why? Because when we get in there with seven men and they're all seeking their self-interest, what you have is self, seven goals and seven purposes and disunity within the church. You see why Paul's bringing this up? Because he's arguing for unity in the church, standing against adversaries. He's arguing for blessings of humility and perseverance, and, and he's arguing for unity. Thus, he puts before a man, a, a men that are that are just unified in mind. That they are men that are a proven character. Number five, proven character. So he says, he says, this isn't Timothy. All seek their own, not the wings which are of Christ Jesus, but you know his proven character. The word is a word that's used for testing coins, medals for their purity. The metal that was proven was a metal that was tested by fire. Second Corinthians 8, 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction and abundance of their joy, and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Um, so what does that have to do with anything? In that passage, Paul's saying that the churches in Macedonia, which may be including Philippi, they were found to be genuine believers. How? Because their faith survived the fires, the trials, the affliction, the deep poverty. And what was the proof of their genuineness? Not merely that they suffered through it, but that they persevered through it and did so in their sacrificial giving. Their faith was proved in the fire and their fruit showed forth as a result of it. Paul's saying the same of Timothy. You know, he's saying, church, you know, they may be recommending other men. Philippi, why don't you send, send that guy? Paul's saying, I can't send that guy. I'm going to send you Timothy. Well, why Timothy? It doesn't make sense. I mean, Timothy's a young man. You know, he's just, you know, in many places, he's, he's actually despised for his youth. He seems like a sickly young man, as Paul writes to him. He has his deficiencies. He's not quite as bold as other men. He seems like a timid young man who is despised for his youth and his inability. You know what Paul says? Paul says, I have no other man like him. You know? I have men with the capability of Apollos. With preaching oratory power of, of men, but, 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 but they're of no use. Not to me or to God, but, but, but Timothy, you know he's been faithful. What's wrong with Timothy? He persevered. He started with me in Lystra, and you've seen 12 years of accountability that, that when times got hard, and when, when things got rough, and, and when the average man abandoned me, and the men with the oratory power of, of, of Apollos jumped ship because of, of the, the hard nights and the difficult days and the, and the affliction that the gospel brought, Timothy's still here. You know his proven character. Yes, his abilities may be up for grabs and questions. He's not the most broad-shouldered man. He's not the most healthy type of man. But he's a man who has proven himself over and over and over again. He's endured the difficult road. He has come out through the fires of affliction. And you know what he's been found? He's been found proven. Like a metal who goes through the fires, melted, and there's no dross to be found, no impurities on top. Paul says, like, that's what you have in Timothy. Some may argue against it, but Paul is convinced that even in his physical inabilities, his lack of experience in certain areas, probably a young man who hasn't experienced a lot of things that would be needed within the church, Paul says, you know, no. At the end of the day, he shares my concern. We're like-minded. He's proven character. Um, and you should receive him. When you get Timothy, you know what you get. He's not a hypocrite. 
He's not the perfect young man. Sure, he's got issues. He's timid. He certainly lacks. But when you get Timothy, you, you, you get Timothy. You know what you get? You get me. You get Paul. I can't come now. The best thing I've got to him. I mean, he's proven himself over and over and over again. Therefore, receive him with gladness. I want you to receive him more than that. I want you to receive him as an example. He has something to offer you. I know that it may not seem like that now. I want you to look at him as an example worthy to follow. Learn from him. He has something to teach you. Maybe not about family. Maybe not leading a home as a father. Maybe not practical advice on parenting. But don't be so arrogant to think that you have nothing to learn from this young man. In the midst of his timidity, he served Christ. Dealing in, with constant sickness, he could have made an excuse not to serve. And what did he do? He went a hundredfold. He could have thrown in the town when people despised him because of his age, but he would not allow them to deter him. Why? Because Christ was his ultimate goal. You may not know everything about him, but you should know this. He's proven. He's proven himself over and over again to me. He cares not for his life in relationship to the gospel, and that's evidenced by how he's slaved alongside me. He's proven. Number six, he's a submissive attitude. He has a submissive attitude. Verse 22, he says, That as a son as he's with his father, he served with me. Timothy's service was marked by humility and submission as a son to a father. The service of Timothy was not cold, indifferent work of an apathetic slave or the disheartened conformity of a cold professional doing business. Nor did he comply out of an embittered heart or frustrated young man that has been exasperated by a domineering father. But what you see is the humble obedience of the heart of a submissive son. His obedience flowed out of a warm-hearted loyalty of a son to a father. You know, the word here that is used is the word technos in the original. There's a couple of words that it could have used to communicate the idea. One would have been weos, which speaks of a, a generic term for a son. But technon speaks of an intimate relationship between a father and a son. The word carries with it the imagery of a family um, life. One writer says uh, of a family life in Greco-Roman world as it related to the son learning the family trade by working alongside the father. Just as a son would be thrilled to be working alongside his dad, picking up skills, knowledge, mannerisms, learning the trade, but also learning to be a man by, with, um, by, by being with his father and working with his father. So did Timothy with Paul. Paul, Timothy would have woken up on days and said, I just want to go to work with Paul. And through that discipleship, through that process of laboring together, their discipleship had, and their hearts were molded together such that Timothy did not, um, was not embittered by the demands or the commands or the um, responsibilities that Paul laid upon him. Uh, that Timothy as a son received it well with full submission, joyful submission and authority um, among equals, but, but submission nonetheless. He was a genuine son. It gives the heart, the idea of a heart that is submissive to spiritual leadership. I was his model and he followed the model. And you begin to see the same image in him. It's no accident that the man who says, uh, that the Paul who said, I'm ready to be poured out for others, has a son who's ready to be poured out for others. And that's exactly what Timothy, Timothy, I need you to go to Philippi. What do you think he said? When do you want me to leave? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? How long do you want me to stay? He never would have seen um, Paul's uh, as a father. And, and may your children cultivate that faith and trust and loyalty in you, man. You know, 
That as you labor alongside them and you bring them alongside you in life, that you cultivate this spirit among you as father and son, that they, they, they don't question your demands. Just as Christ with us, right? His commandments are not grievous. You know, that, that Christ is so trustworthy and so faithful to each of us that, that we know that as large of a demand as it may seem, To follow Christ in this life, He would not put too much upon us. And that if it becomes too much, He would come alongside us. I have no doubt in my mind that Timothy received everything well. Why? Because he understood that Paul's genuine concern was for Christ and His glory. He would not put too much upon Timothy or demand anything of Timothy that he was not willing to do himself. And if Paul could go, he would leave that Roman prison and come alongside and serve with Timothy as well. That was the relationship of Paul and Timothy. Submission and authority, yes, different places of discipleship, but unity of spirit, governed by the same principles, the same type of man. Thus they respected one another and were willing to live and die for one another. So thus you see embodied in Timothy, that very attitude of Paul, who says, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering on your faith and service. And I think it could rightly be said of Timothy, I'm ready too to be poured out, Paul, upon as a drink offering of your faith. Service and active faith. Number seven, service to the gospel. Service to, he's literally, this could be translated. Um, it, it says here, uh, verse number um, 22, um, but you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. It could literally be translated. That word there is slave. It's bond slave. That same word that was used to Paul in chapter one and verse number one, Paul and Timothy, bond servants. Of Jesus Christ, it's literally a slave. You know, what, you know what Paul's saying. He's like he was he 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 co-slaved with me, he slaved alongside with me. You know, in the why for the furtherance of the gospel. You know that love that Paul had for the gospel. Timothy has too. He may not be able to be um, carry all the skills, the ability, the languages, um, the furtherance um, practically that the apostle has. But you better believe. That he has the same attitude, shares the same spirit, the same genuine concern. And whatever he does, he's going to do it as Paul would do it. That's the idea. Not that he's going to be the same man, Paul. I don't expect my boys to be me. I don't expect any of them to rise one day and be a pastor or a preacher of a church. But I do expect them one day and hope that I've embodied the character of Christ to at least some extent that... That they could look at my life and said, and say, you know, the way Dad handled that, that's the way I want to handle life. You know? That, that we may not all come to the same conclusions, and we may not all be the same men, but we should be the same type of men. You know? And we should be living a life in such a way that that is being projected to others, um, not only our own children, but even um, children in the faith. They were slaves, particularly of the gospel. Paul's love and passion for the gospel was successfully planted in the heart of Timothy. Timothy was just as gospel-driven as his father, Paul. And you see that in his service to Paul, his service to Philippi, and his service probably to Ephesus as history um, records. And this was the exemplary character of Timothy's life. Um, and I pray that we've somewhat, you know, laid that out before you this morning. And I pray that you know, the beauty of that 
of His life in connection with Paul has enticed our own hearts to imitate Him and follow Him as He's followed Christ and provoked us to see our need of this. You know? Timothy was the man that Timothy was because Paul was the man that Paul was. You know? Timothy never would have rose to the occasion or been unless he was connected directly to Paul. Um, who do you have in your life um, that you can look to, grow with, um, embody? Are there no men to follow after here? You know? And are there no men who will allow, you know, for a few hours a week, another man to just come under and labor beside them? You know, to be an example. Are there no women here? The same, are our lives just that busy? You know, that we cannot decide. And you wonder why our hearts are not knit together on some things, you know. If you ever wonder that, um, could it be because fellowship, in fellowshipping we share character, we share attitudes, we share, that's, that's, the, that's the goal of, of, of Christ, right? <laughs> what happens as we fellowship with Him? We become more like Him. We become just like Him. As He shares in His Word, as we spend more time there in prayer and among God's people, we become like Him. And that's the reality here as well. In marriages, in families, in life, that we, would become, that we become like one another. That's exactly what happened with Paul and Timothy in the most glorious of scenarios. And may that too be true here in our church as well. I had a joy just studying this text this week. I'll just let you know. And I pray that it was just as much a joy for you to hear. Um, that it wasn't this morning, I pray, to run you down saying you're not doing this. I look at this church and I see much of this being accomplished. I see so many men able to be modeled. Um, and I see the great tragedy sometimes that our lives are too busy and that that would be embodied in one another. That would be my exhortation to you this week. You know, to think, to pray, and to seek out opportunities to make it a priority in your life. Um, to come under a Paul, a man or woman more mature than you. And to find a Timothy, a man or a woman not quite as mature to you. That those two things will probably be some of the greatest sanctifying tools in your entire life. It has been in mine. Following after other men seeing them embody Christ, but at the same time, taking up the responsibility to disciple other men. You say, I need disciples. Find a godly woman. Find a godly man. And pursue them. They may not be at a place. Be understanding. And pursue someone else. We need this. We need this. May God give us men like Paul, and may God give us men like Timothy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ. We thank you and praise you for your patience with us. We thank you and praise you, Father, for men who go before us in so many measures and in so many ways. Father, I thank you for men in my life. I thank you for women in my life. I thank you for godly couples in my life. I thank you for the sanctifying effect that they've had on me. Father, I thank you for their loyalty to you. I know they're not perfect. I know that they would never carry themselves that way. Um, and that's exactly what I need. Um, that's exactly what we need. Imperfect men and women teaching us how to pursue a holy God. Father, would you give us men and women like that? Would you just put in our souls a desire and a need um, to be discipled 
and help us to fashion our lives, Father, um, like Paul and like Timothy, laboring together in the gospel. Not that it'll look exactly the same, and we know that. Father, may it look like um, what is helpful to us, beneficial to us, and most of all, glorifying to you. Father, help us to be committed to biblical discipleship. Help us to be committed to individual purity so that we could be those disciples. Help us to embrace the responsibilities that you've given us, to cultivate godly attitudes such that we can say, um, with our known imperfections, follow me as I follow Christ. And Father, may you give us men and women um, who would see us as worthy of following, not because of who we are innately, but because of the Christ we follow. Father, knit our hearts together as a body. Father, help us to be one mind and one soul. Father, such that when we come to different conclusions on some things, we don't ascribe motivations that are not there, but we recognize and respect those conclusions because we know that they were led by godly principles, because they're the right type of man and the right type of woman. Father, bind our hearts together, unify our souls, that we may glorify and honor you most of all, Father and be an influence to be reckoned with in this world as we shine forth like lights in the midst of darkness. Father, we need you to accomplish this in Christ's name. Amen. If you will, we'll stand and sing just a verse of before the throne of God. And then we'll move to um, our communion efforts. Number 187, before the throne of God above, let us sing verse number 1. Verse number 1, 187. another 10 or 15 minutes to take the Lord's table and we'll um, give some instruction as to that as well. Uh, Nathan, if you'll come and we'll uh, begin to pour the cups. We generally wait to pour the cups until the time thereof throughout COVID and much sickness. We've seen like that's more um, sanitary, so we will, it's been prepared as sanitary as we can. We'll use sanitizer, sanitizer prior um, to that as well. And uh, he'll begin to pour as I, I instruct. If you'd like to, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, where we see Paul's instruction to us in relationship um, to um, the Lord's table, what we might call communion. Um, Paul instructs us there in how, to, in how to take. So 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. I mean, just to give you kind of, I know that some of you are visiting with us. We thank God for you being here. And I uh, just want to to give a little direction as we, we take. We generally take once a month um, something that we see that we are to regularly do. Um, the Lord's table, communion, is uh, much like baptism in that it is a visible means to proclaim the gospel. 
Um, we see it as a practice here at the Congregation of Christ Bible Church and something that's given to all the churches throughout the, um, throughout the generations to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's what 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul um, argues for. He writes this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It is a gospel ordinance. It is something that is given to new covenant believers and believers alone. Um, that these ordinances, sacraments, if you define them appropriately, are those things that are given to God's people. For example, baptism. Baptism is not to be administered to anyone and everyone. It is to be administered to those who have a right understanding of the gospel and have came to him by repentance and faith. And it works and acts as a means to strengthen our faith and to bring us together as a body of Christ. Um, even today, I look at my baptism and I look back at the commitment that I had made um, to Christ and the commitment that He made to me in the new covenant. Knowing that if I'll be held fast, that, that, that He will hold me fast. Knowing that, that, that I was de- uh, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. I often think on that and am continually strengthened in my faith to persevere. In a similar way, God gives us the Lord's table. And this, this bread and this cup to remind us of Christ's death until He comes. And that we would partake of it together as a body. That we would share in this one loaf. We would share in this one fruit of the vine. This one blood. Um, Jesus Christ. And it would strengthen our faith. So that's what we have. We have the juice here, which is the fruit of the vine. And we have unleavened bread. Um, which is the bread they would have used in the New Testament times. Which symbolize um, our Lord's body and our Lord's blood. That has been shed for us. So if you're with us this morning and you're visiting, you may um, want to just sit out um, this morning and learn more about it. We'd love to talk to you afterwards about all the implications of uh, partaking. Um, But we do ask that if you take this morning, that you take by faith and in faith. um, That there'll be some that don't take this morning, and that's fine. That's wonderful. You know, that's someone recognizing um, that they're outside of Christ and in need of Him. And not wanting to partake of the bread and the wine in an unworthy manner, you know. So some of our children will take and some will not. Why? Because some are believers and some are not. And I too would argue to take in the right manner. You know, that, um, that our worship this morning is also contingent upon the sin in our lives. That there's something particularly within the body and that would, um, that would um, argue against unity this morning some ought that you have against your brother, that this bread and this cup will do you no good and will actually heap upon you condemnation if you're not careful. At the same time, that's it's sobering, I know, um, but at the same time, it's so joyful. You know, you say, well, I, you know, I, I sinned this week. Um, does that bar me from the table? Not necessarily. Have you repented and, and, and cling to him by faith? Because the reality is that we all sin and that we take the Lord's table because we sin. That it is a symbol, a memorial, but more than that, to strengthen our faith. As we partake, we're saying we're, we're taking, up, uh, taking part of Christ. Right? As, um, the disciples, as, as, as Jesus is um, discipling His disciples and instructing them, uh, He says, you must eat of Me, you must drink of My blood, you must eat of My flesh. But that's what we're doing this morning. We're embodying faith in Christ as we take Him in, not only as an individual, but as a body of believers unified um, together. So what we'll do is, again, um, this is something that we partake as a body. I would ask that it's believers only. 
that if there's any hesitation that you would wait and let us talk about it um, after the service and what it means to take the Lord's table and those that are um, the right uh, members to take or the right um, covenant members to partake of it. I ask that you take it by faith. And take it with joy if you're going to. Take it with soberness. But at the same time, rejoice in what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. May it preach the gospel to our souls. And may we partake of him by faith as we do. So the way that we practice it here is is that folks will come down. I will serve them. And then they'll proceed back to their um, seats um, along the walls. And when everybody's back, they have the bread and the cup. We'll read the scripture. um, And then we'll pray, bless the elements. And then we'll partake in faith. And we'll sing a hymn. And we'll be dismissed. So Miss uh, Miss Sharon's going to play number 181, His Robes for Mine. If you'd like to, while you're seated there and waiting to, to partake, you can always open up your hymn books, um, 181, and worship the Lord through song as you meditate upon uh, the glorious nature of the gospel. So, again, I'm going to sanitize once more. Come down, and you come as Miss Sharon plays and allow me to serve you um, as Christ serves us.
do love communion, just to be honest with you. Sometimes I, I daydream about, tre- about preaching a shorter sermon and then giving more time to communion. One day that'll work out. Um, it deserves more than just 10 minutes, you know. Um, it is it's more than a memorial. Um, it is symbolic, yes, but it, it does something. First Corinthians 10 is, is clear that as we partake with one another, we share with one another in Christ. Um, as a body of believers, um, it's more than just an individual profession of faith, um, but it is us sharing together in Christ, feeding upon Him. Um, it preaches so much to us of the realities that have been made known to us um, in Christ. And we should take it soberly, but at the same time, joyfully, you know, and probably should take it more, you know. Um, we need Christ. That's what this recommends. This is what this, this symbolizes, us feeding upon Him, the regular coming to Christ. And that's why there's just an exhortation, yes, don't do it unworthily, but at the same time, I would never encourage anybody, don't run to Christ, you know. Like if you've recognized your sin, run to Christ, repent, partake of Him, imbibe Him uh, by faith, believe the gospel, and He'll strengthen your faith. And that's what this should do. You should walk away uh, from communion, taking it in by faith, thinking on the gospel, meditating upon Christ, feeding upon Him by faith, and walking away strengthened each Lord's day that we partake of communion. And it preaches the gospel to us. If I failed in that, because it was more of a didactic uh, message on character of a man, um, then, then let the gospel be preached to you now. Jesus Christ the righteous, God of very God, entered into the world, humbled Himself as a servant, to die a sinner's death for us. He who knew not, knew not sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And every man, every woman, every child here, um, He commands to repent and to believe. And if you will come, He will receive you. And you will receive all of Him. Every divine blessing in heavenly places. And that from that day on, you will continually feed on Him every single day. That's what this represents. This is a dependence upon Christ, not only as ourselves, but as with one another. As we bind together, we share in Christ, unified from one body and one blood, this one bread and this one vine in Christ, which is the nature of Philippians chapter number 2, the nature of Paul and Timothy's union together. It was built and birthed in the very blood of Christ. So let us read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. We'll pray and then we'll partake. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it and remember it to me. So let us thank him for the bread and the cup. Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. Most of all, we thank you for what it propagates to us that truth it proclaims the goodness of the gospel of jesus christ we thank you for that mercy we thank you for that grace and pray father that you will help us to continually lean upon you and feed upon that reality father as we go throughout the week and the next month may we not rest in ourselves may we not depend upon our own strength but may we forever keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds and may that be the thrust of our labors father would you go with us Now as we take this bread and cup, recognizing that it is nothing in and of itself, but Father, as we grip the realities that it presents by faith, you make us more like your Son. So Father, share with us in that fellowship and in that manner in Christ's 
name. He says that after he gave thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us remember him. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. And the gospel was preached.